Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Achieve Your Goals podcast listeners, John Burgoth here. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you're at. By the way, if you and I have never met, I'm guest hosting today for Hal Elrod. If you want to know who I am or why I'm here, you can always go back and listen to episode 152. Well, a couple things, a little housekeeping. Just want to give a big shout out, huge shout out, biggest shout out I can possibly digitally give to the Quantum Leap Mastermind community. There's about 70 members of a private entrepreneurial mastermind group that Hal and I lead together. And uh, about 55 of us were together in Austin last week. And it was an incredible experience. And as soon as I say this, I'm realizing we need to do an episode with Hal where we just kind of unpack what happened for the benefit of you, this listener group, so you can benefit from what goes on in the Quantum Leap Mastermind. So huge shout out to all of you in QLM. You know who you are, lots of love. And we will talk to many of you, see many of you soon in different places and spaces. Now, today's episode is a conversation, a one of a kind, unique, rare, authentically authentic conversation that I just had yesterday with Dr. James Kelly. And James and I met, oh, it was about six months ago. And we met in the most unusual circumstances. I had two of my kids with me, Ace, who's eight, and Sierra, who's six. And we were out in the Bay Area and we went to visit our friend Christopher Lockhead, the co-author of Play Bigger, creator and host of the Legends and Losers podcast. And Christopher has a beautiful home out in Santa Cruz. And I wanted my kids to meet Christopher and I wanted to go to the beach. So we go out there and we're on the beach with Christopher, just playing by the waves. And Christopher says, Oh, hey, by the way. Dr. James Kelly is in from Dubai and he gets here any moment and we're going to walk back to the house and shoot an episode of Legends and Losers together. Well, we did that and it was one of those situations where, and I don't know how, if any of you can relate to this in your own way, but sometimes in life, I feel like when we meet people and there's a Buddhist word for this and I always mispronounce it. It's something like Parajana wisdom or something like that. And it's a certain type of wisdom where in the moment, we're able to actually connect with the deeper meaning in that moment, right? So for example, I don't know if it's easier, but we often talk about or think about making meaning out of our past. However, making meaning in the present is its own unique thing. And I remember meeting James. He actually walked down onto the beach while we were playing with my kids. And within just a matter of seconds, it was one of those things I realized, wow, there's a connection that James and I have here. And I think in life, when we can be present enough and connected enough with what's going on around us and with others around us, it's a beautiful thing when we can recognize in the moment the depth of the meaning of a relationship. And it causes me to stop and maybe some of you and think, you know, how often do I show up and I'm so distracted that I'm missing the deeper meaning? I'm missing the deeper connection with those around me. And I guess, you know, my goal is to uh, be connected and to find that deeper meaning. And, and then where that leads my curiosity is I wonder if that's available with every person I meet, right? There's an interesting question. Well, what happened next was definitely unexpected. So we meet Dr. James on the beach. I sent my kids away actually to go play with some friends of theirs. And then we proceeded to record a six-hour Legends and Losers podcast episode that I'm guessing an entire team of electrical engineers or digital engineers had to work to cut it up to bring it down into an hour or two. Anyways, it's fun when the first time you meet somebody, you then sit down and record a conversation for six hours. Well, that's not what happened in the conversation you're about to listen to. We talked for, I don't know how long, 45 minutes to an hour. But uh, here's what you're about to hear. First of all, it's an authentic dialogue. Uh, This is hardly an interview. and This is something I'm exploring myself, actually inspired a lot by Christopher Lockhead, is the idea with this podcast. And Hal and I each have our own approach, and and that's great. We can each approach this however we want, and uh, you, the listener, can decide what resonates with you. But personally, I really question a lot of the interview format shows that are out there. Now, let me be perfectly fair. 
I don't really listen to any other podcasts. So you could argue I'm really not qualified. You could argue I'm sitting here talking about something that I'm not fully informed about. But I've spent enough time to say that I really question the concept of the interview format. I shouldn't say question it. What I wonder is what's possible when we allow authentic dialogue to unfold. And that's kind of what happened here with Dr. James is we hit record and and within a few minutes, we were talking about some things that were very, very personal. Our upbringing with our, our relationship with our mothers, our relationship with women, how these things are evolving for us, how Dr. James, just before the shooting of this show, was on a run and he fizzled out, called his mom and got in an argument with her because she didn't want to buy one of his books that is being released. She wanted one for free. And I proceeded to share the story how I got out of bed, pissed off, angry, and upset this morning. And uh, it took me half a day just to recover. But I share that with you because um, I feel like I've made a decision in the last year that I would rather I can just be exactly who I am everywhere I go and just really not worry too much or at all about filtering what's going on and what I'm actually experiencing with what I share with the world. And so pardon me for experimenting through this platform, but um, you'll notice with Dr. James, we spent about half the time just having a very personal conversation, the kind of conversation that you might think two guys would have if nobody else was listening. But don't worry, we then get to his book. And I'm sitting in the car outside the national parks. I don't have like notes in front of me. So forgive me if I don't have the name of his book correctly, but I think it is The Crucible's Gift, The Five Lessons for Leaders Facing Adversity or something like that. And I will tell you, there's a lot of books written on a lot of things, leadership included. I hope that you get the feel that I get just by who James is and the conversation around his book. This is not another bullshit book that somebody chose to write because they had nothing better to do and they thought, let's see if I could sell a lot of books. This is a book that comes from a guy who is willing to explore really deeply with leaders through his podcast, Executives After Hours. And when you listen to the lessons that Dr. James is sharing, you realize right away that this is going to be a special book. This is going to be what I would consider almost a timeless classic. So I consider it an honor that we got to bring James directly to you in this community. I hope you love this. Let us know what you think. You can always send me an email personally at hello at lead to flourish, the word lead, the number two in the word flourish.com. Or you can find us on the intraweb via Facebook or however else you want to find us. All right. Hope you enjoy everybody. Take care. Well, hey, I'm here with my good buddy, Dr. James, Dr. Jim, Dr. Jimmy, Jim, 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 <laughs> Dr. James Kelly from just outside of Dubai. And uh, James, what's going on, man? John, uh, listen, I am thrilled, honored, humbled, whatever other adjective I could put into the place there that is about humility to be with you, to be on the show and to chat about whatever the heck we're going to chat about. Well, let's start with this. I want to talk about how we met because that was a day that I'll always remember. Um, <laughs> we, we met on the beach of Santa Cruz. I had my two older kids with me. It was with our mutual friend, Christopher Lockhead. And then in the most authentic, authentic way that things can unfold when you're in the universe of Christopher Lockhead, you and I recorded a six-hour, no exaggeration, six-hour <laughs> podcast episode that I think got cut up into about 45 minutes. I think we had to take four intermissions from that episode. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that was the day we met. <laughs> we, we may or may not need to say anything further about that day. No, but, no uh, it was good. But hey, help us out. Where are you calling in from? You're just outside of Dubai, right? Correct. So I'm in this little town, little 600,000 people called Elaine. And Elaine is really, if you were to describe it, is probably the most conservative town in the UAE, United Arab Emirates. And so I've been out here for almost two years teaching at a university called United Arab Emirates University uh, as a marketing professor. And I'll be out here probably one more year, maybe two max. But it's been a cultural experience that I wanted my kids to have while they were young before they started to resent dad in their teenage years. Wow. So, yeah. so tell us about that. What is it that brought you out there? You say a cultural experience that you wanted to have 
with or for your kids. Tell us more about that. That's a bold move. Yeah. So, you know, I've been fortunate enough in my life to, to live in Australia, to live in Japan. I grew up in the same tiny 900 square foot house, six of us. And when I, when I went away to college, I was like, get me the heck out of here. I need to go see the world. And I've never looked back. Hmm. And so having lived in a couple different countries, you know, Japan can't be any more culturally different than the U.S. Australia is very culturally similar. And at the time that we decided to move out here, it was a very strong belief of mine that the culture in the United States was starting to prejudice against certain races and religions. And I didn't want that to be enforced upon my kids. I wanted my kids Hmm. to come to their own journey and their own conclusion without the noise around them. And so that was one of the biggest impetuses for moving out here for a few years. Wow. You know, it's so interesting that you say that. You know, personally, I feel like my appreciation for diversity, and diversity means so many things, mm-hmm. but my appreciation for diversity has grown tremendously in the past year of my life, in part because I've been able to travel to some fascinating places I've been able to be in some communities that are more diverse than others. By the way, I stand here in a small town of Hudson, Ohio, and diversity where I stand is we have white people and we have really white people, and then we have really, really, really white people. And, you know, that's not a strength, in my opinion. I love your take on, so you've been in Australia, you've lived in Japan, you've moved your family to Dubai. What do you go through? when you live in different places, like what does it do for you? Do you try and take a piece of every culture with you or does it open you up? What does it do for you to be in these different places? I don't think you have a choice. Well, that's not true. You always have a choice. And I think that when you do it, there is a cycle and a process, right? There's the, the initial process is wonder, curiosity. Then you move on to the frustrations of the differences between the cultures just even administratively getting things done. It can be really frustrating at times, especially in this particular culture. It's very bureaucratic. Hmm. And you move on from there to acceptance of the differences. You know, I can share with you a great story. You know, my son um, is a huge soccer fan, player, football is what they call it out here. And he decided to coordinate all of his friends from his school to come meet at this local pitch near our house. It's an AstroTurf pitch. And what happens is that we meet out there. There's probably, at any given time, eight to 10 of his friends. But what always happens, and this is the part that I think is most amazing, is there's between three to five local Afghanis and Pakistani boys that come out and play. How cool. And they don't even speak the language. Like, they speak totally different languages, but they love football. And so, you know, I'm constantly pushing my son, who is 10, to go talk to them, go interact with them, get them involved. And for me, I find a lot of joy in making them smile. And so when you live in these cultures that are so diverse and different, you have a choice to stick with your own kind, which is very common and safe. And I think it's very normal to do. I think that's a normal thing to do. Or you can kind of push outside those boundaries and explore the differences. And there are frustrations in these differences for sure. But I do believe that when you have children, it's really important that you teach them the ability to accept those that are different from them and find the similarities between you two. And only in those moments are you able to actually move forward as a culture, society, group in general. Yeah. And by the way, we jump in if we start talking in about three hours from now. I forget to ask you about your book <laughs> yeah. because you have some seminal moments in your life right now. You, you and I are actually going to be together for a week mm. out here. You're coming out for our LEAF certification training. Mm. And I want to hear about your book and the mission there. But now I also want to go back to something you said, which is, uh, you know, that idea of how people, we gravitate towards those that we are comfortable with. You know, that's something that you'll see is prominent. And when we teach leaders and facilitators about how do you accelerate the forming or the strengthening of a culture, especially when you've got a group of people that have diverse opinions, perspectives, backgrounds, values, beliefs. And one of the things that we've learned, that we've noticed, is that what you just said is actually, you could take any group, any community of any type, any organization of any type, and everybody could be well-intentioned. But the interesting thing about human systems, which that's our scientific word, but you know, everyone's experience of a family is 
everyone has an experience of a human system. The interesting thing about human systems is we often will create collective outcomes that nobody individually intended on creating. Mm-hmm. And what you just pointed out is very common in that we might all intend on creating a positive community, culture, society, company, organization, team, whatever it is. But our human nature, if there's not the structure or somebody facilitating the right kind of connection and inclusion, our human nature is actually to gravitate. Think about it. You go to a party. For a lot of people, what will happen is they will gravitate towards those who are like them, those who they are comfortable with, those who they are familiar with. Some people are wired to go outside of that comfort zone. But uh, what you just described is actually the norm. And I believe that like leaders today and in the future have to understand that when everybody walks onto that soccer field with your son or into this learning community that you're coming into in April, everyone's asking one question consciously or unconsciously. And that question is, can I be myself and at the same time fit in with this group? Can I be myself and at the same time fit in? And I'm fascinated by the fact that you brought your family to Dubai just because you wanted them to be open to other cultures and other experiences. And I have a lot of respect for that. I'm a dad and I think about that. It takes a lot. It's awesome. Thank you. I think the reason is that being exposed to the other forced me to realize that I don't know everything. And listen, I'm just as stubborn as the next person. I, I still hold on to certain beliefs that I probably need to let go of. I still have my fault of judgment at times. I don't need to have, you know, I'm a human being at the end of the day. But as a parent, it's my belief that it's my job to make my kids a better human being than I am. And I'm hyper self-aware of where I'm lacking and I'm trying to grow and be a better person. And if Mm -hmm. being here in this culture allows my kids to be a better human being than I am, then great. I've done my job. That's awesome. And and I got to say that, you know, this lesson came to me when I was, I want to say 10, 11, 12, 13, where I had a family that I'd go see all the time in the summer. My parents both worked and they were the Guzmans and the Guzmans, were my North Star of diversity inclusion as a mm. child. And my parents did a great job. And I can share, you a story, share with you a story in a second. But, you know, the Guzmans, the mom was Irish Catholic. The dad was Hispanic Catholic. And their friends were Native Americans and Hispanics from Central America. And you would go there in the summer and you would get, just get this mix of everything. And it was amazing and powerful And whether you know it or not at 10, you soak in these lessons of diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And as you manifest that as you get older, and my parents did a great job. You know, at 13, my mom and dad belonged to this bowling league. They were slightly white trash, um, this bowling league. (laughs) And uh, yeah, especially in the 80s, this, you know, it wasn't as cool as maybe it is now. Um, But they went out of their way to introduce me to a couple of gay men, couple. And in the 80s, when you think about that in the 80s, that was very progressive yeah. to do that, especially to yeah. expose your child who was 13. So, you know, throughout my life, I've had these role models to say to me, there are other people, other stripes, other religions, other beliefs, and you need to accept those because that only adds value to you and your tolerance as a human being. Yeah, yeah. You know, for me personally... I've had a personal experience recently where the entire movement, and to say there's one movement, I guess Mm -hmm. there's multiple, but especially around women taking a stand for how they're treated by men. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that that has allowed me to be more clear on is I'm fortunate that I work around some incredible women. And at the same time, I didn't have a great relationship with my mom growing up. Mm And in the last year, that whole macro level movement has helped me as an individual to stop and realize how some of my beliefs or my opinions were very much unconscious. And if someone would have asked me, I would have said, I view and treat everybody with the same respect and the same equality. But I think all of us are guided unconsciously by a lot of different things. So can I ask you a question on that? You can ask me anything you want. Please, let's go deep. Let's get out of control. So (laughs) I feel like that will be easy. Um, (laughs) It's already started. (laughs) 
So this unconscious thing, right? This is something that I've really, really been thinking about over the last probably 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. And, and the way it manifests itself with me is my respect for the women closest to me. Mm-hmm. Not women external to me. I respect plenty of women external, but closest to me. And I find that really confronting when I see my own faults in that process. And so my question to you is, did you or do you see your respect for your mom or your beliefs towards your mom manifest itself in your marriage sometimes? Because I know I do for sure in mine. Oh, I think without a doubt. I think definitely in my marriage, definitely with how I treat my daughter Mm. and definitely how I treat any women, like you said, who are really close to me at work. Mm. You know, I think, uh, I don't know if easy is the right word, but it's easier to, when you have people in your life that are at an arm's distance, you only see them every so often to superficially be polite, regardless of whatever unconscious activity is going on. But then when you spend all day with somebody or you come home to them every night, the unconscious takes over, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say beyond a shadow of a yeah. doubt. And I'm at an interesting place where, you know, my mother, I was just with her this weekend. She was diagnosed with dementia recently. And, you know, she and my wife and my daughter, I have you know, three generations of women in my life who I've done a lot of reflecting lately on my relationship with my mom, my wife, and my daughter, and how important those relationships are to me. And I've been trying to learn how is it that, however I related with my mom, how has that been affecting both of those relationships? And it's kind of like good news and bad news. You know, the bad <laughs> news is completely and unconditionally. And uh, if there's good news, it's that I'm actually thinking about it and I care about it, you know? I think I'm in the same boat as you. Like my, I mean, ironically, my mom and I literally got in a fight today. I called her on a walk this morning. I went for a run. It wasn't a good run. So I started walking and um, I decided I'd call my mom. And it's funny what you hold with your mom, you know, whatever resentment that is. We as human beings, for some reason, put our parents on a different pedestal than we do anyone else. Um, and so with this book coming out, my mom is like, oh, I can't wait to get a free copy. And I actually got upset about that. And I'm like, wait, don't you want to support me? And so I try to explain this to her. And she's like, well, why wouldn't you want to give me a book? I supported you your whole life. And I'm like, well, but you're missing the point. Like, and so we had this huge like discussion about it. And then it, it escalated to where she goes, well, you're, my dad passed away when I was 20. And it escalated where she was like, your dad would be disappointed with you. And then I just kind of lost it at that point. I think the train tracks kind of just snapped and I wasn't particularly happy at that point. And um, God, your, you know, run, your run went from bad to worse. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, we ended up, she ended up saying, I got to go and she hung up on me. And you never mm-hmm. want to end a conversation like that, you know, but my mom is this stubborn old Scottish woman who's 75 and having those emotional conversations are not fun nor easy for her. where I try to push the boundary and have the conversation. And then, you know, and so I think my point is that I see that behavior with my mom and and I see it manifest itself in different ways with my wife and even my daughter. And, you know, I have two daughters and I've got two sons. And to your point, I treat the two of them totally differently in terms of gender bias. You know, I'll say, let's go kick a soccer ball to my son, but I don't say it to my daughter. And I'm like, what a jerk am I? Mm. But I didn't grow up with any sisters. So I don't have that that barometer of what normality is in that relationship. And it's something I, I really struggle with and I push through and I try to be better at it, but it's really, really hard for me. Yeah. I grew up with no sisters as well. So I can relate yeah. to that. Yeah. Hey, uh, well, on the topic of your mom supporting your book or not supporting. Yeah. Um, hey. Well, she wants to support it. She just wants it for free. So that's where I'm like, Ugh. but I get it. I get it. Sorry. I'm being a bit, a bit of an ass. Well, let's talk about this book. Tell us about why this book was born. Mm. What led to the birth of this book? What is it that the world was calling for from James Kelly that led yeah. to this book, which was published officially what date, please? Like yesterday. Uh, so pre-sales went up today. Okay. So literally awesome. today. It will be delivered uh, April 23rd is the day it goes. So, so two days later, I'm in your shop in yeah. Cleveland on the 25th. So nice. I'm in Philadelphia for the book launch. And then the next day I fly to Cleveland on the 24th to be with you guys there for the leave. That's awesome. Uh, so to answer your question, you know, as my bio says, I do believe this, that every, every, my life is still being built brick by brick. And I, 
I think that this book is a brick that was probably laid 15 years ago and just kind of was developed over that time. But what helped push me over the nudge was my podcast, Executives After Hours, where I've been fortunate enough to interview you and, and Chris Lockhead and, and all sorts of people about their journey. And, you know, being a researcher, whatever that means, I was able to kind of go back and look at the data. So I transcribed every single interview I've done. And I look at threads and trends and comments. And, and so I went through that and just kind of started finding, not only through listening, but through the words, phrases and beliefs of the different leaders that I've interviewed that supported my own personal thoughts, mm. my own beliefs around what it means to be a leader. And so that's how the book was born. And I'm not a fast writer. So the way I wrote the book helped facilitate it. So over last summer, I spent the summer in Portugal with my family. We lived in a, a little city called Peniche. We did Airbnb for 45 days, uh, nice. 500 meters from the beach. And I'd go to this coffee shop every single day for seven hours a day, uh, five days a week. So I really didn't have fun. My kids did. I just wrote the book. But what I, but what I did is that the book, because it was inside me, I would write an outline, and then my wife would interview me, and we would record it. Mm. And then I would transcribe the interviews, and then I would just wordsmith it, and then find the support and literature and in the interviews that I had. And I wrote 170 pages in six weeks. Wow. Uh, and so it was, it was clearly inside me. It was there. And yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was a very, very, it's so real for me now just to see it on Amazon. Like I see it and I don't know about you, John. I feel like maybe you're better at this than I am. I'm not good at celebrating my wins. Mm. So for me, I've already moved on. Okay, I have to do X, Y, and Z in the marketing capacity. And I've got to do this, this, and this. And here's the long tail of the book. And what do I have to do for this? And I want to pause, I guess, in my mind. But anyhow, that's how the book came about is it was in me. I found support talking to people like you, Chris, uh, and many other people. And, and that's how I was born. So I love that. And, uh, you know, the subtitle of the book is Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. And why don't you share with us any of those lessons sure. that, you know, maybe were most meaningful, surprising, yeah. insightful? Love to hear some of them. So here's the premise of the book at the end of the day, yeah. is that we all have moments. We all have adversity. You know, yours was at 17 when you started with Cutco Knives. That was yeah. one of your first major crucible moments. Besides that and running back and forth to school, 10 miles each way or whatever ridiculous amount it was that you did. Yeah. Um, but that was one of your crucible moments. And in those moments, whether it's immediately after or six months, or for some people it's 10 years later, there's a lesson in that. Mm. And what I found out is so many leaders that I talked to had these moments in their life that help define them or put them on a different path or nudge, if you will. And so for me, this book is really about saying, listen, we all have crucibles, but the leaders that get it are the ones that reflected on those crucibles. And that's what that adversity, why it's so important. I think adversity is critical. I want to be clear that adversity isn't always negative. You know, there's a gentleman I interviewed named the, uh, the very Reverend Richard Pengelly, and mm. he is a two-time Australian a, uh, Olympian in water polo. And he left the sport to become Episcopalian priest, right? So he was team captain. And I mean, in Australia, water polo and swimming is like, that's a God sport next to cricket and, and uh, Australian rules football. And he left it to be a priest. So for him, that was a positive crucible. Many of us think of it as a negative, but you have both getting married, having kids, you know, a death, divorce, bankruptcy. I mean, they're, they're both polars. And it, what I found is that these leaders who had them decided that it was more important to be self-reflective or grow their self-awareness than it was to ignore them and suppress them. Again, it wasn't always in the moment. It could have been 10, 12, 15 years later. You know, there was a guy that I interviewed named Joe Burton, and he actually opens up the whole entire book. And Joe Burton, at the age of 40 years old, was the COO of McCann Erickson World Group, which is an inter-republic group. And so McCann Erickson World Group is a massive ad agency, huge. And he's COO at 40. I mean, think about that at 40. That's unbelievable. This is you know, almost a billion dollar company. He quits his job 
And when he starts unraveling what the problems were, he had came from an abusive alcoholic family as a child. He had a sister commit suicide, one die of a heart attack. His dad died 12 years before. And all of it just came crashing down on him. He gained weight, got asthma, herniated discs. His marriage was dissolving. His kids, he didn't know them. And he just realized, like, I have to change something. And that's when he pivoted. And it was that adversity, all the adversity in his life that led up to that moment, put him on a different path. And that path was enlightenment, self-awareness, more Mm. compassion, more integrity, you know, and these are some of the main concepts that come out of the book. But, but that's one example of many that I found with these people who just, just lead an extraordinary life from a leadership perspective, not a financial perspective. And I think it's really important as a leader. And, and again, John, I think you would agree with this a hundred percent. We can't put leaders and financial success in the same category because they mm. don't go together. Mm. Talk more now, about that. Well, I think too often we think that if someone has, is a leader, that means they're automatically going to be financially successful. But there are plenty of jerks who are financially successful that are the worst leaders that you could find. Mm-hmm. They don't go together. Now, I would argue that if you're a great leader and a good human being, and you're doing what you're passionate about, then financial reward, success, however you define it, will eventually come for most yeah. people. Yeah. But I don't think that having financial success means you're a good leader. I don't think those two go together in that direction. That's just my my opinion. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Well, I think that the whole concept of leadership, I'm really interested in how the way that historically we have viewed the concept of leadership, how it might be shifting. Mm. And um, you know what I love that you're pointing attention to is one of those, what I would consider very timeless and easy to overlook principles of leadership. And the words you just used is how important it is to be self-reflective and self-aware. And um, I think you could call that timeless. However, I think historically, we often looked at leadership kind of the way you said that people get put into roles. A lot of organizations, people get put into roles because they performed well in one capacity and so they get escalated or elevated, but not because of their ability to lead or inspire because they did well at something more at a smaller individual level. Yeah. And they were uh, able to get ROI on whatever they did. <laughs> that ROI in the mind of the business, that's a successful leader, mm-hmm. which is completely not right. Yeah. I think people now today and moving into the future are going to be more and more interested in following others who exemplify more of that emotional intelligence than what someone would call executive intelligence, right? Yeah. 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 I love your point about self-reflection and um, just curious, anything else you could share around, by the way, the word crucible. I like that word. It's not a word I use often. How do you define crucible? What does that mean? So the technical definition, I'm going to paraphrase this because I'm awful of my memory, is basically... um, Now that that you said you are, you're going to be really bad with it. <laughs> is essentially putting something in hot heat temperature and, and reforming it as it comes out, right? So some sort of metal. The way I'm using it is that those moments of adversity are your crucible, it reforms you and transforms you if you let it. And I think that's the big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Going back to the self awareness, it's letting it happen and being aware enough to happen. But I don't think it's enough to be self-aware. I think that's important, but it's what you do with that self-awareness, which is the most important part. And you know, so many people I talk to, and, and it's my personal belief as well, and I, I would gather yours is too, John, is that not only is the self-awareness really important, self-reflection, I think that's a must, but it's the outcome of that that's really the powerful, I guess, ingredient, if you will. And it's, it's the ability to have compassion, And not only compassion for others, but compassion for yourself. I think there's a huge movement around self-compassion because too often we're our biggest critic. We're hardest on ourselves and our failures. I think that our self-critical behavior as a society, I don't think social media helps whatsoever in that process, um, has allowed us to berate our own personal well-being. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the fundamental arguments that I make is that until you're okay with yourself, self-compassion wise, it's really hard to be compassionate towards somebody else. I also want to kind of decouple this because I think empathy and compassion get wrapped together. Mm-hmm. And I, I made a concerted effort to say that they are totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, empathy is I can feel how you feel, John. 
But compassion is, I am compelled to try to relieve that suffering for you. And the word suffering, again, is a loaded term, but suffering is such an easy thing to do in an organization. So John, earlier, you just went and grabbed some tea, right? Yeah. So if you're someone you work with comes by and you say, man, I would like some tea. And they say, let me grab that for you. That's a moment of relieving suffering. That's mm-hmm. compassion for you in that moment. However, that manifests in that person. And if you magnify that in an organization, think about the goodwill and the humanity that you're putting into that living, breathing organism in that organization. Yeah. And so, so for me, compassion is really important. The other thing that was really important to me was integrity. Now, in the book, I, I deliberately don't go deep into moral integrity. I think part of that is because I, I don't want to offend people probably in some ways, but I think moral integrity, we all have our own, our own compass. Guide. Yeah. yeah. But I specifically talk about behavioral integrity and honesty as a really critical point for some of these leaders I spoke with. And for me, I don't do well with someone who I think is blowing smoke up my butt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going to our conversation early on. I don't, I don't do well with that. The pre-show. Um, yeah. Yeah. The pre-show. Um, that was where, that was where Dr. James blew a lot of smoke up my butt. Yeah. But, but, but as we determined authentic. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and so I found that like, it was really important to me as a human being, but it is important to other people in organization that honesty plays a critical role. I mean, think about the time, any time in your life where someone would come to you and tell you the truth, the hard truth, the truth that you didn't actually want to hear, but at the end result of that, it actually moved your needle in a better direction. And so it takes strength internally for someone to tell the hard truth to someone else. And for me, it's that integrity that's really important. Showing up, being honest. Um, you know, I, I always I use Dr. Phil as an example, which yeah. which is awesome. Um, is the, yes, of course. Um, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, mm-hmm. and I think that is a very fundamental thing. That if you want to trust somebody in an organization, you need to see that lead up of consistent behavior to trust that whatever information or, or action that they're asking you to do there's a valid reason behind it and that you can trust it. And it actually brings down the cause to question, you know, and I don't mean question like, you know, clarification. I mean, question like direction. Why are we doing this? What's going on in a negative way, not a positive way. And then the last thing that really comes out, there's two other big things. And one I know is you all the way around the bank, but the next one is this concept called relatableness. And it's a total made up word. You can write it out and it's going to have a red squiggly line underneath it every single time. But the concept of relatableness, it's more about a philosophy. And it comes out of this theory called self-determination theory. Self-determination theory is this idea of intrinsic motivation. And what the theory says is that there are three major components. That when a person has purpose, has mastery, and has relatedness, meaning they see the greater good with the community. They're intrinsically motivated to act. You don't need to give them money, days off. Yes, those are nice. But when those three components are put together, people are going to perform intrinsically, which is the best for an organization, Mm. right? And so the idea of relatableness comes from the idea of saying, here's a philosophy. Leaders who take the time to create what I call micro moments of meaning, whether it's with the admin staff, senior level, mid-level, they have the ability to move mountains. And when I say micro moments of meaning, I mean, they sit and listen with intent with people they're talking to. They're not waiting to talk. They're waiting to listen. And when you're waiting to listen, that means that you're actually present in the moment And you can actually create and have a real conversation. And at the end of the day, you have kids, I have kids. There's so much power in giving someone a voice and having them feel like they're being listened to and genuinely listening to them. And when you're creating those micro moments of meaning, you're giving the other person the power to feel listened to. And that builds trust and that builds loyalty. And I think those are really important when we're talking about engagement in an organization. And then the thing that actually bookends all of this, and this is you, John, all the way, 
is that the leaders that I found that were super authentic, that got it, had what I call a learning mindset or growth mindset, right? A little Carol Dweck for you. And Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, was 2006. It was a groundbreaking book that talked about leaders who had growth mindset and leaders who had fixed mindset. And you know this, the leaders who have growth mindsets, the organizations, the organisms that have growth mindset, man, do they do amazing things because they question, they answer, they re-question, they re-answer, they re-question, they re-answer, they fail, they succeed, they fail, but they're always moving forward with the greater good in their mind of what's going to get us where we need to go. And we're not going to stop and be status quo. And this whole book is written with some of my stories and a lot of stories from people I interviewed that kind of supports these concepts that I've talked about. Well, I was going to ask for a free copy, but now I'm going to buy a copy (laughs) because I'll give you a free one (laughs) and I'm going to buy more than one. James, this is i I'm sitting here just taking notes and uh, enjoying what you're sharing from compassion to integrity, to feedback, to relatableness I mean, the whole train of thinking that you just shared, wow, on so many levels, I have so much appreciation for what you just shared that's going to be in your book. And again, for any of you who just tuned in, Crucible's (laughs) Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. And um, I'd love to react to a couple of things you just shared too. Just from my experience, there's things that you just shared that you know the world that I live in, which is a world of being brought into organizations, oftentimes where there's a lot at stake, and they need to accelerate the ability of a group of people to shape their future together, sometimes in the face of major challenges or major opportunities. And uh, anyone who's listening, I think there's so much that you just shared that in my world, it's like what you just shared are some of the things that make or break the ability for teams to work together. But if someone's listening, even just as a solo entrepreneur or a mom or a dad, I mean, there's so much value just as an individual. Even this last point about the growth mindset, we see that all the time in that, and you said it, and boy, is it way easier to say than it is to do it. <laughs> totally. You know? What I said is all way easier to say than to do, for yeah, sure. Exactly. That's yeah. why we should just put it in a book and hope yeah. someone figures out how to make this stuff work, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But I, I want to share an example about this because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you lead a 25,000-person organization like we were working mm-hmm. with last week or you are trying to figure out how to get along with one other person. These are universal truths, in in my opinion, and in yours. And just the growth mindset is an example. And I'll I'll share with you, when we walk into a group, we're often working with large groups, 30, 50, 100, 200 people who are coming together in a day or two to just in an accelerated way, create a shared vision, solve a problem. And when we're kind of setting things up at the beginning, we give it to people straight. We tell them, we say, look, this isn't guaranteed to work. In fact, there's a lot of times where this, what we're doing does not work. But here's what makes it, when it does work, here's what's happening. And one of those things, because people say, that sounds great. We need a growth mindset. How do we do that? What does that actually look like? What does that look like when it's actually happening? And what we've learned, and this applies when I'm just talking to one of my kids or my wife, not just a whole team, but what we've learned is that growth mindset often comes from, and you said it in one way, which is we're willing to ask questions, listen for the answers, keep asking questions. The way we put it is, am I as open to being influenced as I am interested in influencing others, right? Am I as open to understanding what's going on inside of my eight-year-old son's head as I am in trying to get him off the video games, Yeah, right? Because if I skip that first part and I think, well, I know what's best for him and I need to change his mind and get him to do something else. If I bypass understanding him and letting him see that I want to understand what he's interested in, what he's doing, why he's doing it, and even participate, right? If I skip that, then my ability to influence is pretty much gone. And that's true personally, professionally. Are we willing to open up our minds to different ways of thinking? It's way easier to say that than it is to do. I find there's ways to do it. We've got to be willing to ask questions. We've got to be willing to change our mind. We've got to be willing to let go of what we thought was the right way, and even let others see us change our minds. 
you know, and you can also do just a simple exercise of reflecting on a day, all the things that you did new, learn new, you know, just write every small, tiny thing, you know, the first time I did this or any successes that you had during the day, these are all ways to embed growth mindset. And I kind of want to dovetail something you just said, because there's another way to frame this is releasing judgment, Mm. judgment that you know, judgment that they know. I'll have that figured out about three lifetimes from now. Yeah, well, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's not easy. Again, we can talk about it. Never but easy. A, but it's a great yeah. intention. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I find myself, we talked about the kids, right? I, I mean, I find myself even, even today having a debate with my 10-year-old, which I know we're only going to get more intense as he gets more closer to the teenage years, is stopping myself from cutting him off and letting him be heard to mm. express his full opinion. Yeah. I may not agree with any of it, yeah. but the fact he's able to express it gives him power in that conversation. And again, it makes the negotiation so much easier to move in a direction that's beneficial for both of us. And I think in an organization, whether it's with your spouse, someone you don't like, um, someone who is pro-gun versus anti-gun, like any of those conversations, if we just start a conversation, A, putting judgment on the shelf, not easy to do, but B, Looking at it through their lens, I use that phrase a lot in my book, is start by putting on their glasses first. And if you can start from their angle, and this is a negotiation thing as well, right? If you can start from their position and understanding their position, it makes your compassion so much clearer in that conversation and your judgment so much less in that conversation. Yeah. You know, when you bring up some of these examples, like, for example, the gun control debate. And you could just replace that with any debate totally, where, there, yeah. where there's polarizing opinions. One of the things I've found that helps me personally is being okay with or comfortable with, I don't have an opinion on this right now. I'm still learning. I'm still understanding. I find sometimes we feel compelled to have an opinion because we've given ourselves some identity, whether it's a political identity, a faith identity, an identity with a community, with our circle of friends. And so I need to decide, am I with my group or am I not? And uh, I've come to be very comfortable. And I tell our team where we work all the time, I say, look, the words I don't know or help me understand or I want to learn more, that more often than not might be a lot healthier than right. needing to have an opinion. Oh, totally. I mean, that was one of the things that I, that I think is really important to any leader is saying, I don't have an opinion. Tell me, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know all the answers. You know, I think that that's a powerful art tool in your arsenal, if you will, is I don't know. It's a great, I mean, listen, the more experience you have in life, the more I find there's more gray area. And it's trying to find that nuance in the nuance that's acceptable in the context and situation that you're in. It's hard, but it's necessary. If you start with a position and there's no nuance, then what's the point, mm. right? For me, there's always nuance for, for almost every, I mean, death, Murder, sure, no nuance. We can go to the extremes. You can give me the straw man examples. But in most business contexts, you only have 80% of the information at any one time. And you always have to figure out that nuance in that 20% to make a choice. And that's the challenge. And that's where I don't know. And that's where get more information, ask more questions. Yeah, I think it's a powerful tool. We were sitting on our couch here in the office yesterday. And um, I was with Laura and Scott, who are members of our team. And Laura brought something up. She said, hey, you know, we need to make a decision about blank, right? And as entrepreneurs, as people, we have to make decisions all day long. What was great is she was challenging us to make a decision on something that we needed to make a decision on. And what I noticed is that we as a team, our temptation was to want to make a decision without exploring what's all the complexity involved in this decision. Like sometimes we have this rush to decide and to oversimplify And so I played the role of, I said, okay, great. Before we come to a decision, if that's even what we should do right now, let's look at this from like an infinite number of angles. What's all the complexity, all the people involved, everything that's at stake. So I I went on this like 10 minute monologue, right? To just (laughs) to overwhelm ourselves with how much more there is to think about than just the decision. And at the end of it, I said, hey, those are just a hundred things to think about. And it doesn't mean it's not going to be a simple decision that we make, but I just wanted us to be willing to sit with how complicated it is versus just make a quick decision and overlook all of the different 
consequences. And I think a great balance, like my good buddy, Hal, he and I are partners on different projects. This is his podcast that I co-host yeah, yeah. with him. <laughs> and uh, you know, he and I balance each other because if he and I were having a conversation and I were saying something like, yeah, you know, I think we probably need to have this conversation with so-and-so. What could often happen is a minute later, I'd be interrupting Hal. I'd be like, hey, buddy, you got to get present to our conversation here. Get off your phone. And I'd be like, what are you doing anyways? He goes, oh, I just decided to text to that person that we've made a decision and we're moving forward on something. Like he takes action faster than I can finish the sentence. And I always joke with him. I'm like, how we need to learn how to have a discussion without a decision. But then he turns to me and he says, you know, JB, if we did everything your way, nothing would ever get done. Right? He's like, if we did things your way, I wouldn't be selling 15,000 copies of my book a month. We wouldn't have 500,000 listeners to whatever. And he's yeah. right. He's right. Yeah. And one of the things that he and I have learned to appreciate is how to do both, how to try and be intentional and methodical and principle driven. And we've got to be willing to push a button and, you know, better to make a mess. Uh, so how do you balance over- that out when you guys work together? Like, how do you decide when it's time to go pump the brakes and time to hit the yeah. gas? You know, in our case, I think we're very fortunate in that he is so far on one side and I'm so far on the other side. We're very fortunate that we hit an equilibrium almost unconsciously. But I think he and I both would agree that if I was too much more like him, that there's a possibility we'd make messes that are so big that they could be irreversible in a bad way. And if he was too much more like me, there's a strong possibility we wouldn't gain enough velocity for our biz- certain businesses to grow at the pace they need to grow, if that's what needs to happen. So we're just lucky we've got this equilibrium. And part of what I've learned, I try and convey to others is when you're looking for partners, key partners, don't search for people that are just like you. Like you want value alignment, but not necessarily capability or skill set alignment. Sometimes you almost want those to be polarizing. So you can hopefully get lucky like I have with Hal, if that makes sense. No, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I want to go back to, there's a couple of things you said that uh, I just want to, from my own experience, you know, just validate. And, you know, one of those is you talked about micro moments of positive meaning. We've done a lot of work in the space of what people would call well-being theory, Mm -hmm. or some call it positive psychology. Yeah. And there's a, one of the leaders in that space, the leading researcher, Barbara Fredrickson, who's been awarded recently for the work she's done and, and how pioneering and how important it is. Her latest book called Love 2.0 is kind of her updated research on exactly what you said. And one of the things that she shared with us at a conference we held last year here in Cleveland, it's almost the same word. She calls them micro moments of positive resonance micro moments of positive resonance, which that sounds very much like relatableness. And one of the things that she shared with us is that what they are studying right now, and they believe they're seeing evidence for this, is that in these micro moments of positive resonance, which can be as profoundly simple as two people making eye contact. And in fact, shout out to Karen Pickles, who on our Facebook chat thing here just posted a quote And she said, the purity of our complete attention is the best gift we can give to others. And I'm so glad you shared that, Karen, from North Carolina, because there's a lot of research that shows that, yeah, something as simple as pure presence, eye contact, just in a moment, it actually changes us biologically, physiologically, in ways that are not only instant, but potentially permanent. So and, I talk about my book about that, that concept of in an organization, there was some research done and, it, and I didn't use the individual you talked about, but the sense of like every single time it happens, they found that within the day, it adds upon each other, that positive moment. Mm-hmm. And so the more of those positive moments across the organization, both horizontally and vertically happens throughout the day, you're actually creating the permanence of positivity. Mm. Right. And that's what you're talking about is that idea. And that that was so clear to me that if you can create multiple micro moments of meeting a day for yourself with someone else, various people in the organization, and they're doing the same thing, think about the multiplication effect of that in an organization. And people who aren't naturally inclined to be like that, one of two things are going to happen. They're going to self-select in or self-select out. Mm. And they'll leave the organization because they don't feel like they're a cultural fit at some point. You know, and that's just 
as cutthroat as that may be, you want to bring them along with you. But some people, maybe you disagree with this, innately just don't want to be happy. Mm. And there's, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I think that, you know, I, in my podcast, asking every single person how they define happiness, because it's just something I'm curious about. And what I find, and it's something I struggle with and I work on on a daily basis, is it's a choice. Mm-hmm. It's a choice that you make to be happy. It's a choice to manage your expectations to never be disappointed and unhappy. And so for me and in organizations, if you're creating those micro moments of meaning that have that multiplication effect of positivity, it's allowing the organization to set the expectations of happiness, not pessimism, not you know, anxiety and stress and all those other negativities that happen in a well-being of society that's negative well-being, not positive well-being. Because mm. I mean, you know, the engagement rate in, in the U.S. is like 31% in an organization. It yeah. is so low. It's low, and yet it's actually still higher than most of the rest of the uh, world. 13% is the average. Around yeah. The you know, I think I love this conversation about positive emotions or happiness. What my experience has shown me is that for a lot of people, what can help them is to explore a little bit more what can happiness or positive emotions actually mean? I think those words are actually as big of a barrier as they are a help. You know, when we get brought into situations, we're facilitating what is literally a strength-based approach that's just riddled with positivity. But a lot of times we can't even use those words because we realize it's going to turn people off. And so one of the things that we've learned is that we have to give ourselves kind of a wider palette of an understanding for what happiness can actually, how we can actually define it. Because like the word happiness, even by itself, I think could cause a lot of problems because I think a lot of people hear that word and they immediately imagine, well, that means I'm supposed to wake up cheerful. Do you want to know how I woke up today? This is really bad. I woke up today. My wife woke me up. She was upset about something because something had happened with our kids. And I was so angry with how I got woken up that... I jumped out of bed. There's a pile of clothes on top of my dresser. I threw it across the room. I slammed open the door to our bathroom. And I looked for something else that I could possibly slam or break with very little expensive consequence. I literally got out of bed today, furious at, you know, life. And um, I had to shake myself up. I had to go to yoga. I had to, I had to repair myself by noon. But I share that because... I don't get out of bed every day like that, but I'm capable of it. But I share that because I think for some people, they hear talk about happiness and they might be like me and they might think, you know, cheerfulness, right? Smiling is really not my personal default. And so I think for some people, they actually, it becomes detrimental because they think there's something wrong with them. When I think what Marty Seligman, my interpretation of some of the things that he shared in his research is that if you're just looking at positive emotions, about half the world is wired to wake up with a smile. And about the other half of the world is wired, maybe to be closer to what I did today, hopefully not that bad. <laughs> and, um, and that's why their recent research on well-being, and, which is a word you've used several times, I think is really helpful for us. Or if you look at Barbara Fredrickson's research on positive emotions, I think it can be helpful for all of us to realize that we might never use the word happiness. And it might never be about how much we smile or how cheerful we are. But there's a whole array. There's this rainbow, this palette of positive emotions that all have the same benefit. It might be contentment. It might be a sense of peace. It might be optimism. It might be hope. It might be courage. It might be gratitude. It might be, am I willing to look forward versus backwards? It might be, am I looking at solutions versus problems? It might be, am I willing to be curious versus frustrated? All of those can give us the full array of benefits of positive emotions, but that expands what's possible for us a lot more than I think how a lot of people think I'm either happy or I'm not. That's my personal opinion, that there's more available if we can just broaden our vocabulary there around positive emotions. Yeah, and I think that you're absolutely correct. I think it's the framing of the word happiness. You know, I think happiness does have this connotation of, to your point, cheerfulness, smiley. But but happiness is a state, and that state can be optimism. It can be excitement. It can be love. It can be all sorts of different things that as long as you're thinking about it from the framing 
of moving forward, positive, you know, not looking back. I, for me, I, I, I try to, in this context, I try to be very black and white, right? I try to be, um, you're either a sunny disposition of positivity from what I mean by that is I don't want to second guess my choices. I want to say my choices were made. Let's move forward. I can't change what's done. I can only change what I do forward. And so for me, it's that framing of everything I do in my life. And that's my form of happiness is that I can't control what I've done 10 years ago. I can't control what I did this morning when I went for a run and my quad was cramping. I started walking and calling my mom and getting into fights, right? Like that's done with. Let's just move on. What can I do different next time I, I have that engagement? And for me, you know, my wife would probably tell you I'm not the happiest person. I don't think I'm the saddest person by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm a human being. And as a human being, there are days where I've thought about smashing a door open and throwing my clothes off the dresser and stuff like that. Uh, especially it's with so clothes. liberating. You got to try it out. <laughs> uh, I, you know, what's funny. I mean, I think here's the other thing about for me again, I think this is a personal choice for happiness and positivity. And again, I'm not great. I think of my kids. I think that's always my, my initial frame of mind of everything I do is can I leave my kids a little bit less scarred than I was left when I grew up? You know, can they, can they require a little bit less therapy than I need? Yeah. I, I always joke that like, you know, my definition of, of excelling at parenting is how many years of therapy my kids need. And if my mm. kids need less than one year, I've done a great job. If they have 10 years, I screwed up someplace pretty significantly along the way. And so like I say it tongue in cheek, but, but as a human being, we're all going to unfortunately say or do something to our kids at some point in their life. You know, and having daughters, like I worry so hard because I had no brothers or no sisters, I mean, that yeah. I'm going to say something that's going to just sit there and just when they're 25, they're just acting up back at me because it's something I said. I'm like, I didn't mean it that way or, or whatever. Anyhow. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so cool. Uh, Dr. Yeah. James, uh, hey, we're going to be together in a few weeks. You're coming out here for our leaf training. We're going to be hanging out. I can't wait, man. Um, before we part ways here, anything else you want to offer, share, ask? Yeah. extend to our collective community. And again, if you're thinking about that, I want to encourage everyone to go check out Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. And you know, we didn't, I didn't articulate it earlier. The name of your podcast, please, so people can go find uh, you. Yeah, so it's Executives After Hours. As of next week, I'm taking my uh, first season will come to a close. And that first season was 250 episodes. So nice. Um, nice. it's coming to a close and it'll start back up in September. Um, you can go to my website, www.drjameskelly.com. And Kelly is K-E-L-L-E-Y. And you can get the first chapter for free, the introductory chapter. So go there, click on the Crucible's gift. Just give me your name and email. So of course, that's for no marketing reasons whatsoever. Um, and so you can go there and get your free chapter. And what I've been saying is that, listen, if you like it, great. Go to Amazon, pre-order it. If you don't like it, great. Tell me. I want feedback. What don't you like? What would you want to see different? You know, at the end of each chapter, major chapter, I have a list of anywhere between five to 10 different activities you can do. And these activities come from um, two of my friends that are PhDs in psychology. One is trained in cognitive behavioral therapy at Penn with Seligman. I can't say his name. Siegel, Seligman, Seligman. Seligman, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and the other one was trained in Columbia. So two people way smarter than me came up with these activities that we kind of talked about. What was the aim and focus? So there's some really tangible, easy things to do. I think that when we're talking about change, you know, right now I'm reading Dr. Marshall Goldsmith's book, Triggers, and he talks about the environment a lot in his book. Mm. And I yeah. think that's a really critical thing is, is we make things complex for change and change is actually small incremental steps that have to be persistent and consistent to make for human being. And um, your environment, being aware of your environment, and so is really a critical part in that whole entire puzzle and in the book, I try to, to give you those little tiny activities that you can do, not overwhelm yourself, not think that it's, uh, this isn't me or I can't do it. And that's why I give you a list because some of them I can't do. It's not my personality, right? And there's other ones that I can, it's more my personality. So I try to give a smorgasbord, if you will, of options. Yeah. Awesome. James, hey, buddy. Yeah. So great. Can I leave you with one, one thing about you? And I... And I, and I so I was on a podcast recently and yeah. they asked me, this is a complete compliment. So um, I'm going to end by blowing smoke up your butt apparently. I'll embrace um, it authentically. Yes, please do. Um, I was on a podcast recently and they asked me, who is the most impactful leader 
that you know. And I actually said you. Wow. And the reason why I say it is that you have this aura about you that for me, at least, I gravitate towards. Whatever you're drinking, whatever you are taking, whatever you are thinking, I want to be a part of it. And I think that people around you, you just get that sense about you. And I think that your journey like mine is brick by brick. And I can't wait to see your, your golden path 20 years from now, John. And I just so excited to be part of your world in some capacity. So thank you for having me on the show. James, that means the world to me, buddy. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast.